Be seated. Thank you, Dustin and Sophia. Good morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. Glad, glad to see everybody here this morning. There are three kinds of people at church today. There are those who are still saying Merry Christmas. There are those who are, are, are moving on. They're, they're saying Happy New Year. And there are those that aren't really sure what to say. And so that's why we spared you from the awkward greeting time today. We didn't want to put you in that position where you were at odds with somebody or trying to figure out how exactly to greet each other. Maybe that's occurred in the halls a, a, a few times. Uh, I'm not sure. Those who, are saying Merry, or, yeah, those who are saying Merry Christmas, you're the ones that still have everything up. Your trees are still up, all your decorations. Those of you that are in Happy New Year mode, you, you've completely moved on. Christmas is boxed up and, and you're already in 2018. But there's one thing we can all agree on, is that it's cold. And uh, I'm just blessed by our attendance this morning. We were kind of wondering what this might look like. But I have a joke that kind of goes along with uh, this extreme, uh, extremely cold morning. It's the story of a country parson. This pastor had made a commitment to his church that no matter the weather conditions, he would always be at church on Sunday morning to hold services. And it just so happens one Sunday morning, the pastor struggled through the worst blizzard in memory, and he's arriving at church, and he sees a sole farmer there who has shown up for worship. And he congratulated the farmer on his perseverance and went on to suggest that they cancel the service for lack of attendance. And the farmer says, well, if I take a load of hay out to feed the cows and only one shows up, I still feed it. Well, chagrin, the pastor he goes on to hold a complete service, singing, readings, communion, an hour-long expository service or sermon, even an altar call uh, was given. <clears throat> and after finishing the service, the pastor asked the farmer, well, how was that? Well, replied the farmer, when I take a load of hay out to feed the cows and only one shows up, I, I, don't, lump, I don't dump the whole load on him. Well, this morning you're going to get the whole load, and I hope that's okay. Isaac Watts is often called the father of English hymnody. Watts wrote songs like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, Thy Mercy is a Favorite of Mine, many other great songs. He also wrote the triumphant anthem, Joy to the World. And he penned those lyrics in 1719, and his focus in writing that song was the second coming of Christ. Yet despite the song's clear emphasis on the second advent of Christ, it has become one of the best-loved Christmas songs in all the world. And so a song meant to celebrate his second coming, we have applied to his first coming, which that fact alone highlights the tension of Christmas. The tension of Christmas is that Christ has come and he has done an awesome work. He took on flesh, he grew in stature and wisdom, he lived a sinless life, died a violent death, rose again on the third day, claiming victory over sin and the grave for all those who trust in him. That is an awesome work. But equally as important and equally as awesome is the promise that he is going to return one day and finish everything he started. And so as we live in that tension, the, the tension between Christ's flesh and blood incarnation and the future bodily resurrection of believers from every tribe and tongue and nation. With that reminder, let's just consider afresh these lyrics that we've already sung this morning. 
Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. It's a great song. It's a second coming song. You may have already picked up on it. Dustin mentioned it. But Watts' hymn is based on Psalm 98, the psalm that Dustin read earlier in the service. And in verse 4 it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs. Sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with lyre and the sound of melody. With, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98, it traces the path of redemptive history from the first gospel promise that we have in Genesis 3.15 to its eschatological consummation in a new heaven and a new earth. The psalm begins with, with praise to God as king who saved Israel in the past. Those are the first three verses. Then the psalm, it issues a call for the whole world to praise God as king in the present. That's verses 4, 5, and 6. That's what we're doing here today, praising him together. And then it concludes calling the entire cosmos to, to praise God as judge and king. Those are verses 7, 8, and 9. And commenting on Psalm 98, St. Augustine in the 4th century, he explained, to rightly understand Psalm 98 is to be well instructed in the school of Christ. To be well instructed in the school of Christ. To understand the calling and the mission and the work of Christ. Watts, he understood that to praise Christ well, one must speak of that whole mission. And though he never attended for joy to the world to be a Christmas hymn, it's a very appropriate one. For us to sincerely sing joy to the world, both, both in recognition of the incarnation and in anticipation of that final resurrection, it keeps us from a thin, sentimental celebration of Christmas. And that's also been the point of our Advent sermon series here at Faith Bible Church. This December, our Advent emphasis We've wanted to look closely at these profound realities, realities like joy and hope and peace and light. And we want those things to decorate our lives this Christmas. And in so doing, we've declared to you several things about our Lord Jesus. We've said that Jesus is hope. That thing we need to carry us through the, through the worst days and the worst seasons of life, hope, it is embodied in Jesus Christ. Hope showed up as a baby, so very, very small, but it was much, much bigger than we could ever imagine. Jesus is our hope. 
We've also declared that Jesus is peace. We cannot seek ultimate glory in any created thing and expect to be at peace. Only if we glory in the Prince of Peace will we know peace. And then light. Last Sunday, Mark's message in John 1 was loaded with truth on Jesus being the light of the world. Mankind, you and I, we walk in spiritual darkness. We, we need the light that is Christ to give us life. And now today we come to joy. Which is appropriate because, because the outflow of all of this truth about Jesus, the outflow of all that Jesus has done and all that he will do, it is joy. Which brings us back to one of the great passages on joy and one of the great chapters on joy and one of the great books on joy that you have in your Bible, Philippians chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there now if you haven't already. And from Philippians chapter 4, I'm not going to try and make a case for joy. We've actually done that the last three weeks. All that Christ is and all that Christ has done is cause for the believer to be joyful. So the cause for joy case has been made. If you have responded to Christ and trusted in Christ and worship Christ instead of yourself or the million other things that this world tries to get you to worship, you're already leaning hard in the direction of joy. So that, that joy case has been made. What I'd like to do from Philippians 4 is give you three resolutions for the new year that are rooted in joy. So let's read verses 4 through 7 together. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts today. Now, you probably noticed that we're circling back to where we were at in Philippians before we broke for Advent. So this will be a review, but it's also a transition back to the book that we're going to return to studying next week. I think we have three more weeks in this book, so we're going to carry through most of January here studying Philippians, finishing that up. But also, since Mark told us that according to Amazon, this is the most underlined text or passage in the English Bible. And that proves to me that we're all sufficiently interested in it. I had a couple of people come to me after the first service and said, yeah, that is my life verse. That's my life passage. So to return to it today, I think we're returning to something that we all care about and we all find very real application in. And I don't know if you've made your resolutions yet. I don't know if you're the resolution type. <clears throat> but the resolutions from Philippians 4, 4 through 7 are these. They're there in your notes. Rejoice in the Lord. Be reasonable and request with gratitude. And the result of doing those three things is peace. So let's look at the first of the resolutions here. First, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, he says it twice. He says, and again, I say rejoice. And I don't know if you ever thought about it, but did you ever think of joy as a command? When we think of the things that the Lord has commanded, do we think of joy? The Bible actually commands us to rejoice some 500 times. That's a lot of times. 
18 times in the book of Philippians, Paul says to have joy or to rejoice. In a four-chapter book, that's a lot of times. And I think the, the reason the scriptures constantly push the believer toward, toward joy is because we worship a God who is fundamentally joyful. We worship a God who is fundamentally joyful. Have you ever thought of that? When you think of God, do you think of him as joyful? How do you view God's disposition? Do you, do you view him as frustrated, stern, distant, stoic, calloused, unfeeling? Well, the Bible reveals to us a God who is fundamentally joyful. Psalm 115 states, God is in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. Whatever pleases him. Or consider Zephaniah 3.17 where it speaks of the Lord who is rejoicing and singing with gladness over the, over the hearts of the people who have returned to him. Do you think of God as fundamentally pleased? As rejoicing and singing over you with gladness? I hope that you do. Because try to imagine what it would be like if the God who ruled the world were not happy. What if God were frustrated and despondent and gloomy and dismal and dejected? Could we worship a God like that? Could we sing joy to the world in any sort of sincere way? Would we pray to Him? I don't think we could. We would have to relate to God like, like the children of a gloomy, dismal, discontented father. Like sons and daughters who, who can't enjoy their dad. Those, those kinds of kids, they don't run to their father's arms. They just try and not bother him too much. A few weeks ago when I was preaching on hope, I mentioned a couple of times G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was an English poet and columnist. He lived in the early part of the 20th century. And he wrote this passage that I'm about to read in his book, Orthodoxy. And this is one of my all-time favorite passages in any book anywhere. I just want you to listen closely this morning. There's a lot here. Chesterton says, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. It's a beautiful picture of a joyous God. I love that. A God of wonder and delight. When we view God as Chesterton does, as the Bible does, as pleased and joyful and happy and smiling, it makes sense that one of the core commands given to those who worship Him is joy, is rejoicing. And yet, we are prone, we are. We're prone to sadness and negativity and despondency. And that's likely because we are so consumed with a world that is so sad and so negative and, and so despondent. 
And maybe to make it more personal, it seems we're addicted to evaluating our circumstances as we live in this sad and negative, despondent place. We're always taking inventory of our life. We're saying, okay, I have plenty of money right now, so I'm happy. I'm healthy right now, so I'm happy. My kids are being obedient right now, so I'm happy. My, my spouse is serving me, so I'm happy. But turn even one of those phrases around. You know, I don't know if we're going to make ends meet. Not happy. My spouse is being selfish. I'm not happy. My health, my health is failing me. I'm not happy. My life has taken this unexpected turn. I'm not in control. I'm not happy. And so we allow outside circumstances to destroy our joy. And let me just say, if that's true of you, which it has been for me, it might just be that you never had joy to begin with. You had happenstances that happened to be happy, but that's not joy. Joy is distinct from happiness. Joy is an inner gladness of heart that's not dependent upon outward circumstances. Joy is an inner gladness of heart that's not dependent on outward circumstances. But for so, so many of us, we can't have the joy of the Lord in all circumstances because our functional Lord is our circumstances. So perhaps the reason we don't have joy is because we have the wrong Lord. Our Lord is our finances, or it is our health, or it is this other person. And when those things fail, our joy fails with them. It's the wrong Lord. In the book of Nehemiah, which we're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah after spring break. So spring and into summer, we're going to be looking at that great Old Testament book. In the book of Nehemiah, at one point, when the nation, Nathan, excuse me, the nation of Israel can seemingly do nothing but mourn and cry out to God because of their dismal circumstances, Nehemiah comes and he says to the people, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the word for strength is also translated refuge. And one of the things being taught there in Nehemiah is when the reservoir for joy is empty. When my circumstances don't add up to joy, not even close. When either my failure or the failure of others leaves me grieving and without joy. The Lord, who is joy, supplies my strength to be joyful. The Lord, who is joy, supplies my strength to be joyful. I can actually hide in his joy. I can take refuge in his joy. The joy of the Lord can be my strength. If God were not fundamentally joyful, how could he supply joy? How could the joy of the Lord be my refuge if the Lord wasn't full of joy? He couldn't be. But he is full of joy. He is. And, and those of you who struggle with having joy or keeping joy, please know the answer. The answer isn't more effort. It's not a different prescription. It's not a longer vacation. It's more of the Lord. It's more worship. It's more praise. It's, it's more rejoicing over the Lord of joy. When Mandy and I were first married, we had silver hooks for our Christmas stockings that spelled out the word joy. My stocking hung on the letter J, appropriately. Hers hung on the O, and our dog Baxter had a stocking, and his hung on the Y. Now, don't judge me for giving my dog a stocking. That's just sort of where we were at the time. But in 2005, twin baby girls came along, 
and they ruined our joy. <laughs> the stocking hangers didn't work anymore, so we, we threw out joy. Those letters went off to the thrift store. But you know what? We, we may have physically gotten rid of joy, but we actually received more joy. We had greater joy. The, the expansion of our family replaced our, our small joy with much more significant joy. Well, just to parallel, parallel this, you know that in the, in the beginning, the God of joy, he made a world of joys. And as the work of his hands, we, we know that joy. We've tasted God's fundamental goodness in his world. E- even as sinners, even on this side of sin's curse, we, we experience the emotional surges of, of God-made delight. And, and maybe it's that joy that that gladness that comes through a kind word, comes through a friend's hug or, or our team's victory or, or a warm fire or snuggling with a grandchild or, or good food or good drink. We, we know normal joy. But Christmas is not normal joy. Christmas, the Gospels say, is great joy. Christmas is not natural joy, it's supernatural. God has set Christmas apart. He himself has come down in the person of his son, the word became flesh, and when the angel heralds his arrival, he says, I bring you good news of great joy. And when the pagan astrologers traverse from far and they find the Lord Jesus, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, Matthew 2.10. God gave us a world of joys to get us ready for this moment when announcing mere joy would no longer be enough. God gave us simple joy in order for Christmas joy. Wait and and deepen the experience of great joy. We must know good before we can know better. And God designed his world of joys to prepare us for the great joy that is his son. And our great joy, Jesus Christ, the scripture says, he is now with us. He's with the believer to the very end of the age. And he's strengthening, strengthening us when we're fearful. And he's cheering us when we're grieving. And he's holding us in our moments of suffering. And until that day that he unseats every sorrow, he has promised us in John 16, verse 22, that no one will take your joy from you. Because your joy is in him. The truth of the matter is we become like that in which we worship. We become like what we worship. And rejoicing is a sign that the joy of the Lord is making its way deeper and deeper into our hearts. And that's because the Lord, who we worship, is fundamentally joyful. So rejoice always. That's the first resolution. Second thing. Be reasonable. The word my Bible translates as reasonable, it's one that that Bible translators have somewhat of a difficult time with. And that's because we we just don't have an English equivalent to this word. Let me give you the sum total of the ideas that this word might be pointing to, or at least the ones that I read this week. So reasonableness means gentleness, big heartedness, goodwill, fair mindedness, moderate not defensive, a sweetness. Aristotle used the word to describe the opposite of strict justice. 
So you can see this is an attractive word. It, it describes an attractive sort of person. Most people like being around reasonable people. You're going to have a lot of friends if you figure out a, or if you discover this way to live. But before you jump to conclusions, you need to know that gentleness does not mean spineless. It's not talking about someone with no conviction, some sort of doormat that just accommodates everyone and everything. This is not a spineless person, but it's rather it's a selfless person. It's someone that defers, someone that just doesn't think of themselves all the time, but is so, so busy thinking of and loving others. It's a word twice used to describe elders in a local church, gracious, gentle, selfless. And the passage says, let your reasonableness, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Which is to say, this is not an attitude that should be hidden. This is an attitude that should be on full display in your relationships. Your kids should know your graciousness. Your employees, your spouse, the guy at the coffee shop who serves you coffee. They should know your graciousness. The people you go to church with, they should recognize you as reasonable. And on the surface, this command, it seems unrelated to the command in verse 4, that command to rejoice. But don't be fooled. There is a connection, a deep connection, I think. And I think this because, as I said, the people who are joyful are those people who are delivered from this obsession with themselves and their immediate circumstances. I think that's an exact prerequisite for reasonableness. You know, we've all heard the phrase, misery loves company. And maybe you have firsthand experience with this, but, but people that focus on themselves and their own circumstances, they're often miserable. And what miserable people do is they seek companions. They ask, okay, I'm miserable. How can I make others miserable? I know. I'll be an unreasonable jerk. And I'll turn my lack of joy into your lack of joy. And some of you are like, yeah, I know that guy. He was in my house a few days ago celebrating Christmas. I'm not going to name him, but I know him. And Paul gives us a specific reason for seeking gentleness. And he says it in verse 5. It's because the Lord is at hand. And you can go two ways with this. You can say the Lord is at hand spatially, meaning he's drawn near or he's close to you. Or you can say the Lord is at hand chronologically, meaning Christ's return is imminent, that it could be at any time. And I tend toward the latter of the two views because I think it fits the context better. I think Mark tended that direction as well, so that's good company. But Paul's mentioned the last day several times in this letter to the Philippians. And so I think what Paul is saying is, be reasonable because when Christ returns, you don't want to be caught in some petty argument that has no bearing on anything of eternal value. Be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. And I like some of the things that D.A. Carson wrote as he was commenting on this verse. He asks a question. He says, what do most of us want to be known for? Do you want to be known for your extraordinary good looks? Do you want to be known for your quick wit, for your sense of humor? Do you want to be known for your wealth, for your family connections? Or perhaps you're more pious and want to be known for your prayer life or your excellent skills as a leader of inductive Bible studies. Many a preacher wants to be known for his preaching. How appalling. 
The sad fact is that even our highest and best motives are so easily corroded by self-interest that we begin to overlook this painful reality. Paul cuts to the heart of the issue. Be known for gentleness, for being reasonable. It's a great goal. Third imperative or resolution from Philippians 4. Request with gratitude or simply thankfully pray instead of worrying. This is a very famous verse, so you no doubt notice how, have noticed how Paul frames the command to pray. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. So he frames this command to pray as the antidote for worry. Don't worry about anything, he says. Instead, pray about everything. So the problem that Paul is is confronting here is not prayerlessness. The problem he's confronting is worry. And worry is a problem. My guess is everybody in this room today is worried about something at some level. And the word used here for worry or anxiety is used 25 times in the New Testament. And And the definition that we gather from the uses is that of a divided mind. A divided mind. And one of the things that means is Worry and anxiety, they quite literally tear you apart. They divide you. Divide you in in, in a sense that worry dwells not on the present realities of life, but on the what-ifs of life. They take you away from the present realities. You can't live in the present because you're so caught up on either the failures of the past or the unknowns of the future. I read someone this week who said, and, and I think maybe Mark said this as well, The person who worries is crucified between two thieves. The thieves are past regrets and future concerns. Their heart is always saying, man, I shoulda, I shoulda, I shoulda. And at the same time, it's going, man, what if, what if, what if? And it's kind of playing those things back and forth. Man, I shoulda done this because what if this happens? Man, I shoulda done that because what if this comes to pass? You can see the picture of the divided heart and mind in that kind of attitude. But understand what what the apostle is teaching here when he says, do not be anxious about anything. I I don't think Paul is saying we should be so aloof and and so carefree that we're never realistically or meaningfully concerned for anything. That's not what Paul is talking about. The word is used of a restless anxiety. It's the type of worry that steals our joy. It chokes out the Word of God in our life. Again, it divides our hearts and minds. It it paralyzes our usefulness in God's kingdom work. It takes us away from that reservoir of joy. And at this point, you might be thinking, man, Paul is really asking a lot of us here. First, he says rejoice always, not just sometimes, but always. Then he says don't worry about anything. And when he says anything, it really it, it reads like he means anything. Then he says, pray about everything. I mean, come on, Paul. Always? Anything? Everything? Let's get real. Who can, who can really do this? Let me ask you a question. How's the alternative to what Paul is commanding working out for you? How is letting your circumstances determine your joy working out? 
Is that working out? How's the anxiety about all the what-ifs in this world, how's that helping you sleep at night? Is that going well? How are those huge issues in your life, the ones that you're not praying about, how are those working out? You see, Paul isn't asking too much of you here. Paul's providing the only solution for you to have any sense of flourishing in this life. And now finally, let's look really quickly at the result of these resolutions. The result, you see it there in verse 7, is the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, just to sort of summarize, when you've been cultivating joy in your heart, joy in the Lord, joy that's not derived from your circumstances, but joy which is derived from the truth of the gospel, from the Lord who is joy, from him. When you've been seeking to live in in gentleness and reasonableness with your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you have, instead of worrying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, when you've been entrusting yourself to God to provide for your needs and to give you direction and to make a way, because you've been doing all of that in your time of need, in your hour of, of, of plight and trial and desperation, Here's what God is going to do for you. He's going to give you a peace that's beyond your comprehension. And I love the way Paul describes how peace will come to you here. It will come to you and it will guard you. It will guard your heart and mind. This is another military word. It's a a synonym for, for guard would be garrison. Peace will be like a garrison around you. I don't know if you remember back to the start of our study of Philippians in the fall... Mark shared of of some of the history and the geography of the city of Philippi. We had visited there this summer, and so he was able to take a lot of what we went over uh, during that trip and kind of share it with you. And you remember he said to us that Philippi was a Roman colony. And because of that distinction, a vast number of Roman soldiers would have retired and lived in the city of Philippi. And so that's why throughout the book, Paul employs all this military language saying things like stand firm or advance or guard or there are plenty of others. Fellowship is even another military term. His context, all these ex-Roman soldiers, they would have understood this terminology. And additionally, since it was a Roman colony, it would have been fortified and guarded by Roman soldiers. And because of this, I'm sure your typical Philippian slept in peace Because their city was a guarded city. It was garrisoned by soldiers at all hours of the day and night. So Paul's saying, that's what God's peace is like. You can rest because God's peace is surrounding you. It it guards your hearts and minds. You need not worry because of what is garrisoning your soul. Let me just say to you this morning, that's the kind of peace we need. And receiving that kind of peace, it begins with being at peace with God. It begins with being at, at, at peace with God. And then cultivating peace with one another. When we're at peace with God, we're given the ability to cultivate peace with one another. We have that reservoir, that access to, to, to joy which can fill up our hearts. To reasonableness, to gentleness, 
with other people to praying and not worrying. And when you do those things, the Holy Spirit comes and gives this overwhelming confirmation that God's promises to love you and take care of you, those are true. And he will hold you up when nothing else in this world is going to hold you up. And here's what I realize. Some of you are just sort of limping into 2018. Not, not literally, but, but spiritually, emotionally maybe. Some of you maybe are crawling into 2018. That's where you're at. And so I want to encourage you today, if that's your situation, go to the Lord who is joy. Go to the one who has given us good news of great joy. Go there and rejoice in the Lord. Go to the joy of the Lord and find a rejoicing that's beyond your circumstances. It will be supplied there. And if you're here today and if you've just kind of gone through the motions as you've sort of attempted to celebrate this Christmas season, you've just kind of mumbled your way through the songs and sort of just sleptwalked through the gift giving and haven't really thought or pondered what it meant for Christ to come. That, that your need was so dire, that you were so messed up, that the Lord of the universe had to take on flesh to be your only hope, to be your only access to peace, to be your only source for joy. That your sin was so deep that it took the death of God to remedy it. If you've never thought of that in this Christmas season, I pray you think hard about it today and that you come to Christ that you seek his light, and in seeking his light, you no longer walk in darkness, but you find the joy that comes in knowing him. Here's our Savior at work. Here's our Savior at work, where it says, No, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Man, joy to the world. That is the mission of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we come to you and I am so grateful for this gathered people, this people who have sang to you, they've rejoiced in your goodness and your, in your kindness this morning. Lord, I pray that, that those realities would be ever more real today, that the reservoir of joy that you hold out for us we would just find ourselves swimming in as we move into 2018. That, that joy would characterize us as believers in Christ. That reasonableness would, would just so be, be natural in us that, that people are drawn uh, to, to what we have in you. That worry would be driven far from us because of a commitment that we've made just to being prayerful and diligent in seeking you. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ who loves us first who shows us what love is in, in coming and going to the cross for us. We pray that he be glorified today in all that we've done. And Lord, I pray that as we've sought his glory in here, we would seek his glory out there as you send us away from this place today. Keep us safe as we travel. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction, please. I want to say to any of you that are guests this morning, 
Uh, we have a welcome table that's just outside these doors in the corner. If you can go there, somebody would be there to greet you and, and give you a little bit of information about our church, if that's what you might be seeking. If you're looking for a church home, uh, we feel like Faith Bible Church is a great place to be. Uh, so uh, you might go there. They'd get a little information from you uh, as well, and we'd be able to follow up with you and minister to, to you uh, as you may need in the coming days and weeks. Also, one other thing, this Wednesday night, uh, we will not be meeting our Wednesday night activities reserve on the, or excuse me, resume on the 10th. Uh, so this Wednesday night, the 3rd, uh, we will not have a WANA or student ministry or adult Bible study. Those things uh, start up again on the 10th of January. Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this, and I'll send you out with these words. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever Amen. Go in the joy of the Lord today. You're dismissed.